Please turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we will begin in verse 12. Initially, I had planned on us just doing verses 12 to 17, but reading the rest of it, it really gives the conclusion of everything that he is saying thus far. So we will read through the remainder of the chapter through verse 26. Um, this is this is a book that is just fascinating to me. It, I have truly grown to appreciate it even more so just in the few weeks that we've been in this because it is it is just so timely. The message is just, I mean, it's like he's looking at our day. And he's, he's giving us this understanding of life because as he is trying to pursue the meaning of life, he is going over many of the things that we think and that we have felt, things that we have wondered. He's really shattering some of the deceptions that we build up in our hearts concerning the world's goods and the temporary things of the world. If we only had this and we're looking to Solomon and he says it's meaningless, it's nothing. So there are some great things that we are looking at here, even though as we first get into the book, it seems kind of despairing. Because when we begin to think of life apart from the Lord, and we're thinking about everything that we do in a daily repetition of everything that we're doing, it seems to be like, what is the point? What does any of this matter? And it really gives us a picture, as one theologian had pointed out, when we think of Genesis 3, we think of the fall. We wonder... Uh, when the when the Lord has cursed the ground and everything on account of the fall, what is life like after that? And if we wonder what is life like after that, we don't really maybe ponder that because we only know our own lives. But if we begin to just think for a moment, what is life like after the fall? We have Ecclesiastes. We have this book to give us that understanding of what life is like after the fall of man. Because everything that we're finding in here is the opposite of what was intended in the beginning. And that's exactly what this theologian says. <clears throat> he says that this book assumes the sinful actions and consequences of the fall and provides the Bible's most thorough exposition of its effects. That's what Ecclesiastes does. It is the preacher, it is Solomon who is, who is trying to find meaning, who is trying to indulge in the various things that is available to him, whether it's wisdom or whether it's the works of his hands, whether it's wealth, whether it's the partying life and the laughter that comes with it, whether it's pleasure, carnal pleasure. And his conclusion is that nothing satisfies. It's all vanity. And so now, he's going to turn his attention back to wisdom. And he's going to perhaps relook at it. Did he miss something when he begins to consider wisdom? And what does wisdom bring? What are the consequences of it? What does it result in? And tonight, he actually 
gives us a little bit of good news. Whereas before it has been kind of dreadful, he gives us the good news about what it is that truly satisfies. But he has to go through these other things first to come to this conclusion, to get to the end of himself, basically, to where he finally acknowledges what it is that satisfies in this life. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we will begin in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible word. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as in the fate of a fool, it will, be, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility in striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun." This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in, all his, in, <clears throat> and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word, and we pray and we ask that the Spirit of God would give us understanding and help us truly, genuinely to appreciate the life that we have in Christ against all the temptations of the world. Father, let us be joyful in Christ and let us see what, what enjoyment that you have placed before us in him. Help us, Father, to, to see that and to be satisfied in you, to be content in you, 
the source of true joy. We pray that you would guide our thoughts and may the Spirit of God do a mighty work within us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. There is much that Solomon is speaking of here. As he has went through so many other things. He has contemplated a number of things already. He's already contemplated wisdom. And he's went through the, the, the fact of indulging in his wealth. And all the women that he had for his carnal pleasure. All the lavish parties that he would have, all the laughter, all the works of his hands, all his palaces, all his gardens, everything that any man could ever want, Solomon had. He had at his disposal, he had servants to serve him at every moment of his life. Anything that he desired was available to him. And as he had said before, he did not refuse anything that his eyes desired. He did not withhold anything from himself concerning pleasure. And yet his conclusion, it was all vanity. It's meaningless. So after contemplating all of that, he's going to turn his attention back to wisdom. Maybe, maybe he missed something. Maybe there is more to this than than what he had first contemplated. Now you, you see in some of this, you see the, the despairing language that he is using. He's, he's getting to the end of himself. He's trying to find the meaning of life. He's trying to see what it all, what it all means. What does any of this matter? Because every day, as we've talked about before, we get up, we go to work, we come home, we spend time with our families, we go to bed, we get up, we go to work, we come home, it's the same thing, over and over again. What does it all mean? What does any of it matter? These are the questions that he's going after, after he's having all these great parties. Is this what life is about? You notice, as we talked about before, when he talked about all the concubines that he had, he didn't mention all the wives that he had. The wives and the concubines together was like about a thousand but he only mentions the concubines because he's only, he's only in reference to perhaps the carnal desires and the carnal pleasures. And after all of that, is this what life is about? All the lavish gardens that he had, all the ponds and the trees and all the beauty of everything that was planted, all the, the palaces that he had. His one palace took 13 years to build it must have been a sight to see. Is this the meaning of life? Is this what it's all about? It's vanity. It's, it's meaningless. Now, he's really going to get into the why of a lot of that <clears throat> as he is answering other questions here for us. And some of the things that he comes to conclude as he turns once again to consider wisdom, madness, and folly... That wisdom of living life skillfully or that madness and folly of indulging in all the things that he had beforehand. He's considering the two and he's going to come to some very dark conclusions. 
as, as we're looking at this, you can see the despair. He's in a dark place. And this is Solomon. No king was ever like him. None had the wisdom that he had. And some of the things that he concludes are very dark. So here's what he says. He says, So I turned to consider wisdom, madness and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? So he's setting the stage here for us. When he's saying uh, what he's getting at, being disappointed with every other pursuit of pleasure, he turns again to wisdom. Is there something he overlooked? And he asks this question, and as he is going through this, basically, what will the next man do that I haven't done? So is anything more going to come to the next man that hasn't come to me? And the answer to that is no. What can a man do that comes after such a king as Solomon? Who can outdo him? There's not going to be any greater wisdom to come after Solomon. It really rests upon him. So he says of wisdom, and I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. He's basically saying the same thing. There is gain in wisdom. There is gain in living a life of wisdom versus that of folly, which is basically, as he is using this language here, of like walking in the dark. You can't see where you're going. You stumble. But having wisdom, there is a gain there. And by the way, <clears throat> as he is saying these things and he's coming to these conclusions about wisdom and it's all vanity, he's really referring to the natural wisdom that comes to man. Because wisdom itself is good. We read in the scriptures, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Job, these are the wisdom literature of scripture. Wisdom is good. But where does the wisdom come from? And how do we understand true wisdom? That's really what's in view there. So don't think that to learn anything and to, to, to have skill through life is a bad thing or to seek more knowledge is a bad thing. It is not. There is gain to wisdom as he had saw it. He's really speaking the same, same things Using a little different language, the wise man's eyes are in his head and the fool walks in darkness. And here's what he says, though. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as in the fate of a fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. So he comes to this conclusion after all the wisdom that he has, all the wisdom that he has gained. And again, his popularity reached to other places in the world. He was so wise. And the conclusion that he comes to is this. What, what's the profit in it? Because there's going to be a fool over there. I'm going to die in the same way that he is. The same fate befalls us both. 
Having more wisdom isn't going to prolong your life, not necessarily. You're going to die in the same way as a fool. Your life is going to come to an end. That's the point. There's no, there's no gain in that sense. The more you know does not prolong your life. I think natural man thinks that it does. And I think natural man is seeking after that very thing. That's what he's after. That's what he wants. I mean, if you think about all the books that are written or the movies that are made, somebody continually trying to find either the Holy Grail so that they can live forever or the fountain of youth so they can live forever, or you have some sci-fi movies that are trying to find some alien civilization to find out how they can live longer, etc. I mean, natural man is obsessed with that very issue because death is indeed despairing. And that's what was causing Solomon to despair here. It's, like it's, it's, it's no different. No matter how much wisdom that I have, no matter what things that I have gained in this life, all the lavish things that I have in my life, I'm going to die just the same as the fool. But there's more to that. He says, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. And as much as in the coming days all will be forgotten and how the wise man and the fool alike die. Not only do the same fate befall both of them, the wise and the foolish, they both die. And then they're both forgotten. Both of them are going to be forgotten. Again. As I'd asked a couple of weeks ago, how many of us can name the names of our great-grandmother, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, great-great-grandmother? Does anybody know their names? Some may. Some may do a wonderful genealogy and be able to have all that in place. Sure. Most often, many of us are not. Their lives came and they went and as much as people are loved while they are here in the time that they die time passes generations come and they're forgotten and that's what Solomon's looking at he's saying there's no lasting remembrance it's the same as it is with the fool It's the same with the fool as it is with the wise man. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. They die and they are forgotten. That's the very thing that I think troubles a lot. Is that they want to make a name for themselves. They want to leave some kind of lasting legacy. And very often, many are going to be forgotten. Now... We can think, well, some people won't be forget, forgotten, but, I mean, even if you think of movie stars, we know a lot of movie stars from the 80s and 90s and, and uh, in our day now in the 2000s, etc. Do we know a whole lot from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s? They were very famous in their day. They died. And they're forgotten. 
even people who had fame. After a couple of generations, they're forgotten, unless you happen to pick up one of their movies, pick up one of their books. But that's the way of life. And that is, that, that does bring some, some anxiety to us, perhaps, or some sadness, some sorrow. But that's the way it occurs. You know, if many of the names were not written in here concerning the genealogies, they would not be remembered. And even though their names are in genealogies, they are often forgotten. You come to some names and you're like, I don't know who that is. And that's what Solomon sees. And that's what Solomon comes to understand. And as a result of what he's, what he's coming to understand, he says, so I hated life. <laughs> Solomon, who was gifted with all this wisdom from the Lord. I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. And this is what life is like apart from God. One writer says, The writer of Ecclesiastes has set for himself the task of making us feel the emptiness of life under the sun and the attractiveness of a God-filled life that leads to contentment with one's earthly lot. That's what Solomon's doing. He's making us feel the emptiness of a life apart from the Lord. Because a life apart from the Lord, what does it all mean? Nothing. There's no lasting remembrance. But he goes on. He's despairing of this. He hates life. Because he, he recognizes this reality. After everything that he's done and all the fame that he has and all the possessions that he has, all the pleasures that he's partaken, and it, there's no lasting remembrance in any of it. So then he goes on as he leaves this understanding of things. He moves along and he says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Everything that he's done, he can't take it with him. Right? We've heard that. We've heard sayings like that. It doesn't matter how much riches you get or whatever, you can't take it with you. Well, Solomon is hating life and he's hating the fruit of his labor because he can't take it with him. It's going to be handed off to somebody else. And it's going to be handed off to somebody else who didn't labor for it. And he says, it's very interesting that he says this. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. And if you go to the book of Kings, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, it was under his reign, right when he becomes king. The, ten, the leaders of the ten tribes, representatives of the ten tribes, they come to Rehoboam and they say, look... We'll still serve you if you don't put on us the labor that your dad did. And so Rehoboam goes to his advisors. The older wise men say, yeah, make it easier on them. 
The new guys say, make it even more difficult for them. So Rehoboam says, I'm going to make it more difficult for you. And the ten tribes say, okay, we're out of here. And the kingdom splits. And then you have Israel and Judah. And uh, Solomon's son reigns in Judah while the ten tribes, ten of the tribes, start to govern themselves. After everything that Solomon had done. The borders of Israel expanding under his reign. All the wealth that he had accumulated. And guess what? It meant nothing. Because his son, acting foolishly, is going to inherit all the labor of his hands. And he's going to abuse it to the point where the people under him say, We will not allow you to reign over us. And the kingdom splits. So in one sense, he has a right to despair. Though he may not know what's coming... He's going to die before this actually happens. But what he's saying is true. All the labor of his hands, all the labor of our hands, everything that we do in this life, it's going to be handed off to somebody else. Anything that we accumulate in this life is going to be handed off to somebody else. The things that we enjoy and the things that we collect to ourselves, when we die, we can't take it with us. It's going to be handed off to somebody else. I like books. I have a lot of books. I enjoy them. I enjoy looking at them. I look at them and I say, man, I'm so glad I got that book. Look at that book. And I like putting them in certain orders where I have like systematic theology over here. I got apologetics here. I got my commentaries here. And guess what? When I die, I have no idea what's going to happen to them. There's a time or two that I've asked my children, Hey, you guys get my books. Thanks. Appreciate it. And I'm like, honey, if I die before you, what about my books? And we'll figure out where to send them. And I'm like, And we, we, we think of things like that. But we, we have things that we collect, things that we enjoy. But after, after we die, it's going to be handed off to somebody else. And the thing is, is that we don't know who's going to enjoy them, who isn't going to enjoy them. Maybe we're going to end up at the landfill. Who knows? At the recycling bin. Who knows? You can't take things with you and the things that you accumulate and the things that you have for yourself, the things that you enjoy, it's going to be handed off to somebody else. And so as a result, he says, therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. He is Truly sorrowful as he is contemplating life and the meaning of it. But this is the reality. Everything that he's going into is the reality of life apart from God. You can try to find fulfillment in every one of these things that Solomon has already indulged in. But you're going to come to the same conclusions that Solomon does. 
It's all meaningless. It may be fun for the moment. It may be enjoyable for the moment. But it is not going to be satisfying. Whether you make a name for yourself, whether you have a a lot of wealth, whether you have a lot of carnal pleasure, whatever it is, the big houses, the cars, or whatever it is that you think is going to make you happy, and you have the wisest man in existence, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ who is telling us, it's all meaningless. Now we can either look at this and we can say, but Solomon, you don't know what we have in our day. We have some really neat stuff. And there is nothing in our day and there's nothing that is available to us in our day that he don't have. Or didn't have. Because there's nothing new under the sun. Is there any particular one that we know of right now who has about 300 concubines and 700 wives? I know of none. about all the wealth that he had. To be a ruler over a people as he was. That's the thing that we deceive ourselves with. We look in the scripture and we see these folks who say things like this and we're like, but we're, we're very far removed from that. You know, Solomon lived close to 3,000 years ago. But everything that he is saying is true of life right now. And the things that he is sorrowful about are things that perhaps you have been sorrowful about. Especially considering the next thing that he says. Because he says, when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with him. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his because all his days his task is painful and grievous, even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. And so he's not only talking about the labor of your hands, it's all meaningless, but think about how grievous the labor is. Think about everything that you put into it. Whatever it is that your profession is, that you put your whole self in it, there should be a reward there. That's, that's what he's looking at. There should be a reward to all the labors of our hands. But the thing is, is that somebody's going to come right behind us no matter how much we contribute to something, no matter how much that we try to advance something. And maybe we're the top dog for their couple of years or whatever, but somebody else is going to come. And somebody else is going to take the things that you have done and they're going to expand it and then they're going to be the person and everything that you've done is going to be meaningless. As if it didn't even matter to the people whom you labored for. You take, you take working in a, you know, a factory or whatever, and maybe you've advanced a number of the ways to do things, and things are going along well, production is well, better than it has at any other point, and then some young hotshot, after about 10 years, with a bigger degree than any of us, comes up with new ideas, using the foundation of whatever it is that you had done, but 
They can do things better. And then they're going to take off and everybody's going to be looking to them as if everything that you did didn't matter. All the time that you put into your work, all the hours that you labored and all the times that you bring your work home with you, all the times that you have loss of time with your families, loss of time with your spouse or your children or your friends or anything, guess what? In the end, it was all vanity. That's why it doesn't pay to be a workaholic. Because what is the end result? The end result is after you work as hard as you do and after you labor as hard as you do, you're going to die. It's going to be handed off to somebody else. A couple generations go by and you're going to be forgotten. That is the reality. All the time that you lose with your family thinking that you're, you're advancing something or this is more important or whatever and the end comes and what do you what have you to show for it that's why i think it's very difficult too uh, why it is that people who start businesses and the be- business begins to flourish and they come to the time in which they're going to retire it's very hard to for them to let it go because once they let it go out of sight out of mind people don't think of them All the years of your labor, it's probably going to end with a nice little going away party for you. Perhaps some cake, going away gifts, some hugs. Enjoy your retirement. And then they go on. That doesn't make us feel good. Not at all to think of life in that way. But that's all you got. That's all you have apart from the Lord. And that's why Solomon is pinning these things in the way that he is. Because he is bringing that, the, that reality of the emptiness of life apart from God. Maybe we don't realize that when we were unconverted, by the grace of God we've been converted and we can understand things better. But life is empty. It's unsatisfying. I was listening to um, Derek Thomas, and I didn't even think when it was that he was uh, saying these things, but he was talking about the actor uh, Johnny Depp. We know Johnny Depp. And he was saying in an interview, Johnny Depp was, that he hated his life. And you think, how can he hate his life? And what he was saying was, he can't go anywhere. He can't go down to the coffee shop. He can't go to the movies. He can't go to the store. He can't walk down a sidewalk without the paparazzi being there. Trying to take as many pictures as they can. Constantly hounding and so he pretty well, pretty well stays to himself. But you see him on the screen. You see him in Pirates of the Caribbean. You think, man, he's a great actor. He's one of the most talented actors. 
And yet he's saying he hates his life. That's the emptiness of life, even for those that we would think have it all. That's the emptiness of life apart from God. And that's what Solomon is saying. He's saying the very same thing. All the labor that we, that we do, all the nights that we are with our families, and as he says there, even at night his mind does not rest. Even though we're with our families, we're not really with them because our minds are still focused on whatever it is that we think is more important or what is, whatever it is that we have to do. And he says, this too is vanity. Again, think of all the time that is wasted thinking that you're doing more important things than what is actually the most important things. But this time, he does end on a positive note, on a good note. Because here's what he says. He says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. Now, as one theologian had pointed out, some of the more modern common commentators would say that he's still being cynical here. He's saying, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, right. But the older commentators are saying, no, he's now turning his attention where it needs to be. And he is giving the answer to what it is that truly satisfies and that truly gives meaning to life. And he's saying that apart from the Lord, you look at the labor of your hands and it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. It's going to be handed off to somebody else. There's no enjoyment there. But then he turns right around and says there is enjoyment. There's nothing better for a man to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. The very thing that he was despairing of, the very thing that he hated, he now says he can tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? So what is he doing? After being in the dark place that he was. And he's pinning all of this for us. The time of his life in which he is struggling in all of these areas. And when he comes to the conclusion of it all, as we will see also in chapter 12. He says, who can enjoy it without him? In him you can enjoy. In him you can enjoy the fruits of your labor. In him you can enjoy the labor. You can eat and drink. He says, tell himself that his labor is good. This is from the hand of God, he says. For who, who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? And what is he pointing us to? He is saying to us, the only true satisfaction in this life, the only true joy is the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who gives meaning to everything. He is the one who gives purpose. 
Without him, we see the emptiness, but in him, we understand that there is true joy. And you have true joy when you begin to think to yourself that a holy God who sits on his cosmic throne has come down and he has died for you. That brings enjoyment. That brings joy to your heart to think, wow, I have the privilege of knowing him. Of having a relationship with him. He gives me meaning. He gives me purpose. So that everything that I do in this life is not vanity. It's not meaningless if I'm doing it in service to him. And he has placed me where he has at this point in my life in the place that I am in order to labor for his name and to glorify him in everything that I do. I have meaning and purpose at my job. I have meaning and purpose at home. I have meaning and purpose when I'm doing little things at home, whether I'm changing out, whatever. I don't really do the electrical. I was going to say that, but I usually have Colton do that. I don't do electrical. When I'm changing out floors, which I had Colton do as well. And Caden, I had him too. But everything that you do, you can enjoy. And you can look at the fruit of your labor and you can say, Lord, thank you for granting this to us. This is enjoyable. I do have true joy in everything that you have granted to me because it has come from your hand. I thank you for the job, even though it's tiresome, even though it can be grievous at times. Yet thank you that I can enjoy it. Because everything that I do, I do to the glory of God. Thank you for the people that you've allowed in my life. Thank you for the times in which we get together. We don't have lavish parties like Solomon, but we get together and we fellowship. And there is enjoyment there because we have been united in the spirit of God. And we have such a close bond because of that. Thank you, Lord, for the people that you've placed in my life who are a joy to me. Who encourage me. Who love me. Thank you for all the family that I have. The aunts, the uncles, the cousins, the brothers, the sisters, the moms and the dads, the children. Thank you for allowing me to be part of that. There is enjoyment to be had. There is meaning to life. But it is only in him that you have it. I think I shared this with you last week, but I'm going to say it again. It was John Piper who said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And when you are most satisfied in him, then everything that you do, you can truly have enjoyment in it. And when the time comes that you hand it off to someone else... I've enjoyed it. I've thanked God for it. It was a pleasure to me. And you hope and pray that it's going to be a pleasure to them. But your time's up. You did what you were supposed to. You were enjoying the things that God has blessed you with. And now it's left to another to do the same. For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. 
This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Here's the contrast. He's contrasting again. The one who is good in God's sight, who has the Lord, and the one who does not. The one who does not has the task of gathering, collecting, and feeling the emptiness of everything that Solomon has just said. And what he says there, sometimes perhaps it is given to one who is good in God's sight. Though the, the unbelieving toil and they see the emptiness of life, the things that they are sorrowful about and the things that they despair about, no matter what it is, if they're handed off to someone who is good in God's sight, meaning one who is called upon the name of the Lord, who knows him, it can truly be enjoyed. And that is the contrast. The people of God find our joy in him and knowing that everything comes from him and the things that we have were blessed by him. And, the, and this is what is center to it all. The holy God who has called us to be his own possession, to be his own people, and to not only enjoy the things in this life, but to enjoy the things that are coming thereafter. To allow us to have a life after this one for no other reason than he decided to bestow his love on us and to grant this to us. When you look to the cross and you see the Lord Jesus Christ who is truly God, truly man, who is dying so that you and I may be redeemed, you see the greatest act of love right there. And in him, through him, we have such privileges to come before the Lord. And again, to see everything that comes in our life as a blessing by him. The people in our life, the family we have, the, the labor of our jobs, everything can truly be enjoyed. But dear friends, do not be deceived. You cannot have it. You cannot have this kind of satisfaction and this kind of contentment in which Solomon is referring to here apart from him. In the times that you try, you will come to the same conclusions that he is. You will come to the same emptiness that he feels and the same despair that he feels and the hatred of life and the hatred of everything that he's doing because apart from God, it's all meaningless. Let us not fall into that trap. Let us see and understand what great blessing has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Again, and I'm going I'm to keep emphasizing it, that Paul says that he has lavished Upon you, the riches of his grace lavished upon you. Instead of looking at the things that you don't have or thinking that you'd be more satisfied, look unto the author and the finisher of your faith. Trust in him. And as the scripture said, you will never be disappointed. Let us do that. Let us pray that the Lord would help us to do that. Be satisfied in him. He gives meaning to it all. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you once again for your word. And thank you so much for this portion of your word. Thank you for the honesty that we find in passages like this. Even though at times they are very hard to swallow. 
Sometimes it is difficult to see the reality of things apart from you because we deceive ourselves into thinking otherwise. Father, forgive us for treasuring other things, the temporary things, more so than our eternal God. Thank you, Father, that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you that when we fail, you pick us up and you dust us off and you allow us to continue again. Thank you for your great grace and your patience towards us. Father, do a mighty work within us by your spirit, bringing these realities true to our hearts. Allow us to see the joy and the contentment that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the great joy and the great peace that we have in him. For only he is the one who satisfies. Thank you for allowing us to come into your presence, to know you, to serve you, to be loved by you. Father, may our lives glorify you until the day you call us home. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, Amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.